Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm Jonathan Carl. And I'm Rick Klein, political director at ABC News. And Matthew Dowd here, political analyst, ABC News. We've got a great show today. We're going to talk to the man with the Richard Nixon tattoo, Roger Stone, the sometimes advisor for Donald Trump, and uh, the guy who says uh, that politics is performance art. We're going to be talking to him, as well as a vice presidential candidate, newly minted, Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts, is going to be on hand talking to us. He is looking like a vice presidential candidate for the libertarian ticket. And finally, what we really wanted to do is we wanted to talk to Lyndon Baines Johnson to get LBJ's take on Donald Trump. It turns out it was a hard booking. We couldn't get LBJ. He's uh, He's been out of this for a while. But we got the next best thing, Brian Cranston, who plays LBJ in the upcoming HBO special. Uh, so here we are, Rick. But before we get to our first guest, I, I wanted to ask both of you, uh, a poll that kind of shocked everybody this week, uh, Fox News came out with a poll that showed Donald Trump with 45% in a hypothetical general election matchup and Hillary Clinton with 42%. I mean, the conventional wisdom all along here was there's no way Donald Trump can win. What's he doing actually ahead in a general election matchup? So this marks the first time that conventional wisdom has been wrong all campaign. It's it shocking, isn't it? Wow, we're going to challenge assumptions here for once in this campaign. No, this, this, is, this is, though, shocking for a lot of Democrats who said all along, look, Trump just can't win a general election. And I think they are making the same mistake that every Republican has made over the last year, which is not understanding that, A, Donald Trump is a better politician than you realize, and more importantly, that he's speaking to something out there. And if Hillary Clinton ignores that, she's going to have real problems. And of course, John, it comes in a week where the Democrats have become the Republicans, and the Republicans the Democrats. You've got Donald Trump doing all the traditional things, like financial disclosure, meeting with Henry Kissinger, talking about Supreme Court. And you've got the Democrats with accusations of inciting violence at conventions and, and, and saying they want to oust Debbie Wasserman Schultz as chairman of the committee. So the bernie mentum on the left not dying down and Donald Trump poised to now take advantage of the chaos on the other side. But, Matthew, isn't that a reason to question this poll? I mean, the fact that Republicans are coalescing around their nominee, Democrats are still in a very divisive primary fight, that Hillary Clinton will ultimately win, but you still have a lot of angry uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. Doesn't that make you kind of think that you need to wait until uh, the, the Democratic race is consolidated before you can really trust a general election poll? Well, I think we're going to see the volatility, I think, in this race is going to be astounding as we go forward in the course of this. I'm not surprised to see Donald Trump ahead at this point in time, as you say, with what's going on in the course of this by two or three points in what he has in it. I think this race is going to be very competitive. Donald Trump could even take a bigger lead in the aftermath of the Republican convention before the Democratic convention. Then I think the Democrats take a bigger lead. But one of the things, or a couple of things in this poll that is fascinating is one, the level of distrust and dislike they have of both of these major candidates. It's, it, it's an unbelievable number. It's the highest numbers we've ever seen in the course of this, even though Donald Trump has consolidated the Republicans as much as Mitt Romney did at this exact same time. There's no Republicans out there saying, I don't know what I'm gonna do, I don't have it. They're basically consolidated at this point with Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton has some more consolidation to do among Democrats. But we are being faced with, which is why I think the William Weld interview is very good, we are faced with an electorate that is going to be presented with candidates that the majority of folks don't want. Yeah, it's astounding to see in that Fox poll that Donald Trump is 
distrusted by a strong majority of the American electorate. That's a, a pretty tough position to be starting a general election campaign. And then you look at Hillary's number, she's distrusted by even more. Over 60% say she's not honest and trustworthy. Uh, in, in incredible numbers going into a general election. Um, you mentioned Bill Weld. Uh, this question I have on this, before we get to uh, Roger Stone, who's, who's joining us in a moment, is this is a serious libertarian ticket. You have two former Republican governors. I would argue this is the most formidable potential. Now, they don't have the libertarian nomination yet, but assuming they do, the most formidable libertarian ticket that we have ever seen. The Libertarian Party had its high watermark four years ago with just 1% in the polls. But is there a chance now, uh, with such discontent with both of these uh, candidates, Trump and Clinton, that you could see the Libertarian Party break through and get past that 15% threshold in the polls that could actually uh, put Gary Johnson on the stage, on the debate stage in the fall. John, what I think, I, I think Libertarians won't be flying alone on this one. You've got the Never Trump movement that's been actively trying to recruit someone to, to run as a third party candidate. Those efforts are fizzling out. Mitt Romney threw in the towel in the last couple of days. Tom Coburn ruled himself out. Mark Cuban, we just said name after name, Ben Sass isn't doing it. So in the absence of that, you're going to have some universe of uh, of Republicans who are going to look to, to put their support somewhere that isn't Donald Trump. Add to that the Bernie Sanders crowd. And, and I think there's a more overlap than people may realize with the libertarians and liberal Democrats. Hey, they're, 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 in the intervent diagram, where does marijuana exactly. fit into that? If that's uh, your one get, issue, exactly. Gary so, Johnson, as a Republican governor, favored the legalization of marijuana. That, that you know, I don't know. But what do you think, Matthew? Uh, does think that get 15%? Well, I think, well, we, as you see in that Fox poll, the, right now, Gary Johnson, when they put him in the poll, he's at 10%. So he hits double digits before this really it's, gets even going. And I think before even the former Governor Weld name is even added as a ticket on this course of this thing. So they start, I think, at roughly about 10% in the course of this. They are going to put, if they get the Libertarian nomination, they're going to put immense pressure on the debate folks to basically be included if they're above that number, I think. I think the 15% number was picked out of the air. I think it was to sort of keep other third parties out of this thing. But if they're polling at 10, 12, 14% come August in the course of this, it's, I think it's very hard to keep Gary Johnson out of a debate. But right, on that note, let's bring in Roger Stone. Roger, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here. So I, uh, you, you tweeted on this, caught my eye uh, after the, uh, the, the news of the Weld uh, possible running mate, um, libertarian running mate uh, leaked. Did that ticket, if it were reversed, you said, if it were weld on the top, could be a threat to both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? Well, in retrospect, it could be a threat even as it appears to be going forward. Uh, I supported Gary Johnson four years ago. I like to think that I played some substantial role in his getting on the ballot in 48 states. The criteria for the debate shouldn't be a poll, by the way. It should be the theoretical possibility of being elected president. The Green Party candidate was not on a sufficient number of ballots to theoretically win 270 electoral votes, so at least you have an argument as to why they should not be included. But the Presidential Commission on Debates is not appointed by the president. It is not a commission, and it's most definitely not about debate. It's about limiting debate. Well brings star power to a Johnson ticket, and therefore I think he would increase the, uh, the prospects of them getting on the debate stage. Uh, Bill Weld is an enormously capable guy and someone I actually uh, tried to convince to run for president in 1996 unsuccessfully. I tried to convince Governor Johnson to take him for vice president four years ago. 
uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, so this is this is uh, very interesting political news. The entire ticket would benefit from the fact that both Trump and Hillary Clinton are exceedingly polarizing. And, and who do they take away from? I mean, uh, you know, the conventional wisdom immediately would be this was something that would hurt the Republicans. These are two former Republican governors. Uh, you know, that anything that they would get would, would be drawn away uh, from from Trump. But as Rick points out, I mean, you could see a potential uh, attract, you know, a, a potential place for the disenchanted Bernie Sanders supporters. Yeah, absolutely. I, I reject that notion. Uh, I think that they end up taking out about equally from both parties. You remember they're running as fiscal conservatives, but social progressives. Uh, Hillary, to my knowledge, has not come out in favor of the uh, of the uh, legalization of marijuana. Uh, Weld and Johnson uh, would repeal three strikes a year out, which have filled our prisons with young African American men. There's a lot to appeal to Democrats uh, in a civil liberties based aspect of the libertarian campaign. So it sounds like you'd like to see him on the debate stage. I mean, something that Mr. Trump's talked a lot about is is the system being rigged in the, in the spirit of openness and, and, and as you say, just uh, presenting choices. Would you like to see Gary Johnson and Bill Weld at the vice presidential level included in the debates if they go forward? Absolutely, because I want to see what happens when the American people find out that there is a candidate who would repeal the Patriot Act, who would, who would, uh, who would legalize and presumably tax marijuana, who would who would um, challenge the the concept of endless war, which has been brought to us by the two party duopoly? Uh, the uh, someone who opposes the big bank bailouts, which neither the Republicans nor the Democrats have done. Uh, it is interesting that three years ago, almost four years ago now, there was one poll in which seventy two percent of the voters told us that they wish there was another choice between Romney uh, and Obama. Of course, there was another choice, but they didn't know about it because the mainstream media didn't tell them about it. Gary Johnson's name ID was exceedingly low going into the to election day, despite the fact that he had broken his back campaigning for almost two years. So um, there is a there is a critical mass point at which people become aware. Uh, and perhaps the libertarians can do that this time. I, I was, it, it, pardon me for asking this, but is there any chance you'd work for Gary Johnson or support him? You sound like a big fan here. Are you a Trump guy through and through, or is there a chance you'd go to the libertarians here? Uh, I, you know, I'm a Trump guy. I'd like to see who he chooses for vice president. Uh, I, I would be reticent if he picks a globalist or he picks, uh, you know, somebody who is, uh, uh, who is diametrically opposed to Trump's positions. I just think that's unlikely, however. I am a, a giant fan of both Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. They're both personal friends. They're both giants, in my opinion. Look, Johnson is a guy whose job creation record was better than Mitt Romney uh, or Rick Perry put together. Somebody who cut taxes, cut spending, uh, but uh, proposed the uh, the uh, both supported both gay marriage and uh, the legalization of marijuana. Someone who reduced state debt. He has a very admirable two-term record. This is not some academic. Uh, or some college professor nominated by the Libertarian Party. Gary Johnson and Bill Welder, guys with deep government experience who could actually, you know, do the job. So you wouldn't rule out supporting or even working for them if Trump, you know, went off the rails with his VP pick? You know, I, I, I have great uh, affection for Donald Trump, and I am very excited about what he's been able to achieve here, and I'm very much in the Trump camp. Uh, on the other hand, I'd like to see the platform. I'd like to see his running mate. I'd like to see how the campaign 
proceeds, I, I frankly am very encouraged by the fact that he's really taken the offensive against Hillary Clinton in a way no one has previously done. Uh, and it's going to take that uh, to uh, defeat her. Can I ask you about your role uh, in, in Donald Trump's presidential efforts here? You, you were, of course, one of the very first, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe the very first, if we go back uh, more than a decade, uh, to encourage him to run, uh, to help him uh, towards running. And then you went into exile uh, for a while. Uh, when, when did you start talking to Trump again? How, long, how, how often do you, do you talk to him? What, what is your role right now? My official title is Kabitzer. It's <laughs> a good one. I like it. I like it. Some good Yiddish. I, I am neither a formal nor informal uh, advisor to his campaign. I'm just a supporter of Trump and a 40-year friend of Trump. Uh, and I am doing my own thing. My, I write a column. I'm constantly on radio. I think I've given over 100 surrogate speeches for Trump. Uh, I, uh, we have a good relationship. We speak from time to time. The contents of those conversations are private. Uh, I spoke to him by phone within days of my resigning, and uh, we resolved any of our issues, and I'm really proud of him. And I'm, I'm amazed even I am amazed at what he's been able to achieve. I mean, he has changed the rule book. Uh, I always thought he could do well as a candidate, but little did I know that he would make history and that we would have to throw out the door or out the window all these things that we believed, that you had to have polling, you had to have analytics, you had to have millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of paid television commercials. Trump had none of those things, yet he's gotten the largest number of votes for a Republican candidate for president in the primaries in American history. If I'm not mistaken, you're also involved in some efforts to organize super PACs for Mr. Trump and to get some people involved to support him. He has, and his campaign, his campaign manager, consistently said that they renounce all of the super PACs. What are you telling people? What is a billionaire to do if they want to support Donald Trump? Is there an official super PAC where you can park your money. We know the Democrats are doing it already. They've already dumped about $100 million, they're saying, on Donald Trump uh, attack ads. Will there be tr uh, pro-Trump, anti-Hillary super PACs that have the official imprimatur? Well, first of all, uh, it would be foolish to unilaterally disarm. You've got to play the game the way the game is played. I think Trump opposes the corrosive influence of special interest money within the super PACs. That said... Trump's legal counsel, Don McGahn, addressed the New York, pardon me, the, uh, the National Association of Republican Lawyers a week ago, and he told them, look, uh, Trump recognizes that he has no legal authority to stop people from organizing uh, super PACs. He recognizes that many of his good friends are going to want to get involved and do something, and therefore he recognizes that it is inevitable. Will there ever be an endorsed super PAC? I don't know. Uh, my attitude is, you know, let a thousand super PACs bloom in the sense that Priorities USA, the pro-Hillary super PAC, has already announced a $20 million negative television buy for June, where they have actually reserved almost $80 million worth of time. Uh, and that has to be answered by some combination of pro-Trump advocates. I have taken exception to one of the super PACs, the one called the Great America PAC, because uh, Jesse Benton, who runs it, was convicted of bribery last week. He's a convicted felon. And Ed Rollins works for Teneo, the Clinton-connected lobbyist firm. So I just don't think they're the right two guys to help Donald Trump. Also, Ed has never been a Trump supporter, has been a 
20-year critic of Donald Trump's until he signed on for this gig. So couple that with the fact that they have a $600,000 debt, the New York Times wrote that they claim they spent a million dollars on media, but they really spent $100,000 on media. You know, I just think that it's caveat emptor. The, the donors have to look very carefully where they put their money and try to put it with people who have some credential uh, in terms of, you know, doing something effective. Hey, I got a, a simple question for you. Who, who's in charge over there at the Trump campaign right now? Donald J. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I should have seen that coming. I but think you ducked uh, the but, question. <laughs> but uh, but you know, I mean, I, I've I, I seem to have noticed you're not a big fan of the uh, campaign manager uh, Corey Lewandowski. Um, well, what... I I think that uh, that uh, that any campaign with factions is doomed. That's the historical precedent. Campaigns are not democracies. Somebody has to be in charge. Now Trump is in charge in terms of the overall thrust of his campaign, but. When members of the staff are out leaking self-surfing stories to elevate their position in the entourage, they're doing a disservice to the candidate. When I uh, worked for Ronald Reagan in 1980, uh, John Sears, Reagan's campaign manager, hired me. I had a high regard for Sears, still do, and great loyalty to him. When Reagan fired Sears and hired Bill Casey as his new campaign manager, it occurred to me that I didn't work for Casey or Sears. I worked for Ronald Reagan. And if that's what he wanted, then I would cooperate. I think some of the people in the Trump campaign who were there early have not cooperated with some of the newer people who have joined the campaign to augment the effectiveness of the campaign. I'm glad to see the more experienced uh, people. Uh, but a campaign has got to pull in one direction. Uh, and worrying about measuring the curtains in your White House office or about where you are in the entourage is counterproductive. What everybody ought to be thinking about is how to elect Donald Trump. But but you've you've been on Twitter calling Corey Corey Loserdowski. I mean, this is a campaign with factions. It appears that way, but uh, but one cannot uh, just turn the other cheek. In other words, when you leak a story to the Washington Post that you're in charge of vice presidential selection, but you're not. And that, and that became very clear in the AP interview with Trump the next day, where he seemed taken aback by that question. Uh, or when Fox News is sent a one-off press release announcing that, I still maintain uh, that Robert Costa is wrong. He knows it's wrong. Uh, and he hasn't retracted. Uh, so, yeah, I, but this campaign isn't about Louis Korandowski or Paul Manafort or, or Roger Stone or anyone else. It's about Donald Trump and making America great again. All right, Roger Stone, thank you very much for joining us here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. I'm sure we'll have you back uh, soon. Delighted to be here, guys. Thanks. Thank you. So, uh, Matthew Dowd, uh, if you're still with us, that, that was striking uh, to, uh, to hear the, the, the man, the most visible, longtime uh, political advisor to Donald Trump, uh, speak so glowingly about the libertarian potential ticket. <laughs> it was, John, it was. It was striking. I'm actually agree with him. I actually, when you take a look at the where those where Kerry Johnson and Bill Weld may draw from, I think he's right. I think they probably draw equally from Hillary and Donald at this point in time. And you can tell he's had a personal relationship with both of these folks, and he probably is aligned with them the way it sounded on a number of different issues in the course of this. Though obviously he has a very close personal relationship with Trump, it is an amazing thing. He actually sounds like he's encouraging it. Uh, in the course of this. So I don't think that's what the Trump campaign would be doing. But <laughs> no, I don't think so. 
What Roger Stone certainly is. Yeah, there's uh, I, as we know, they don't always speak with with one voice there. And and what he was saying as well about uh, about campaign turmoil over in Trump world. I, you know, I don't know what the how many Republicans are really like Roger Stone. He may be one of a kind. Uh, but in terms of ideology, there there might be something here. I, I'm struck, John, by the the fact that the the Trump campaign has gotten away in a, in a way for as long as it has with the kind of haphazard campaign operation that it has. I mean, this is this is still not anything like a, you know, a typical campaign with, you know, a, a big press office and regional staff and uh, state directors. They uh, they they don't have that still at this stage. And, you know, the primaries are winding down and the party is is coalescing. But there still isn't anything like that structure, and the fact that Roger Stone is still talking to, uh, to to Donald Trump directly and and questioning Corey Lewandowski's uh, leadership. I don't know how that's productive for the campaign. Yeah, and and you talk to uh, senior people in the in the Trump organization there, the Trump campaign, and it is striking how uh, how much tension there really is among those uh, you know that, that that core of advisors that was incredibly small and now is bigger. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, Stone put it right. Uh, the guy that's in charge is Donald J. Trump. There is absolutely no question about that. We have to take a very quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be talking to the latest vice presidential contender, this time for the Libertarian nomination, Bill Weld, is going to be joining us here on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. And we're also going to be hearing from the great Brian Cranston in his role as LBJ. Hey, this is ABC's Dan Harris. I hope you're enjoying John Carl's podcast. I got a recommendation for an even better one. It's my podcast. It's called 10% Happier. I'm just kidding. It's not better than John's podcast. John's superior to me in every possible way. But if you want to hear more from ABC News folks, you can listen to my podcast, 10% Happier, or lots of other ABC News podcasts if you go to abcnewspodcast.com or to the Apple Podcast Store. I don't know, Dan. Dan. Dan may be about ten percent better than uh, better than us. What do you think? Podcast trash talk. This is a new thing for me. I don't. I don't know. But Dan. Dan, Dan does great work. I, I, I've read his book and Ten Percent Happier, and uh, you know. So I, I will say we're we're equal within ten percent within yeah, the margin. A, he's a good ninety percent guy, man. Um, all right. Well, we have. I believe we have on the line Bill Weld, the former governor of the state of Massachusetts, and the latest entrant to the Veep Sticks. Right here. Glad to be with you guys. Governor, it's great to have you here. This is big news. I got to say, we were we were all buzzing about this uh, when we well, when we it's, first. Well, it's interesting news, at least. <laughs> no, I mean, this is this is something else. I mean, you, I, I, I you know, I followed your career going way back to the uh, you know, of course, your time as governor, the the the, the great uh, Senate race against John Kerry, uh, buzz about you as a presidential candidate, as a all, all kinds of things. So. What what's going on here? Are you first of all, you really doing this? Yeah, no, we're really do, or we're really trying it. There's a convention of the Libertarian Party next weekend, and we got to get the the uh, designation there, or, or this thing doesn't get off the ground. But Gary Johnson is uh, favored to win the presidential, and then he and I have agreed to uh, run together as a ticket. We overlapped as governors in the '90s and uh, got along very well. Uh, we were both. Uh, fiscal and economic conservatives. Uh, the Wall Street Journal said I was the most fiscally conservative governor in the country, and Gary vetoed more bills than all 49 other governors combined. And we're both in blue states, and, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're reelected uh, relatively easily. So it is a, it's a uh, playbook for how Republicans uh, or even libertarians in office could do well on the 
economic front. And we got together actually in uh, uh, Las Vegas last weekend to shake on and seal the deal. But there'd be no uh, no problem with this ticket uh, getting along, uh, you know, with the two ticket mates, either personally or ideologically. I've always self-described as a libertarian, and when I ran briefly for governor of New York back in 2006, I actually had the Libertarian Party endorsement. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot we want to say to both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, uh, assuming we can get a seat at the table. The Libertarians have been running for a long time, uh, and the high watermark, as we talked about earlier in, in this podcast, was simply 1% uh, last time. It's often been a place... Uh, for protest votes, uh, not necessarily any candidate that has a has a chance of winning. What's right. what's your? Is, I mean, certainly there's a lot to protest this campaign. So is is this about a place uh, for for voters to uh, register their disapproval of the two main candidates, or do you actually think you have a chance to win this? Well, you know, you, you wouldn't. En- we're not predicting anything, but you wouldn't enter if you uh, a race if you didn't think there was a chance of winning. So we're we're hopeful. I do think this year's. A little bit different in that, uh, you know, substantially more than 15% of the electorate has said we wish we had uh, a third place to go. We're not satisfied with the major party candidates. We are kind of in the middle because we're economic conservatives who think that uh, spending money you're not taking in hollows out the economy and weakens you internationally, and that would be a message for the Democratic side. And uh, we're social liberals, libertarians, uh, which is a big message for the Republican side, both on, you know, we're pro-choice. Uh, the, the Republican Party line is anti-abortion. There seems to be reluctance uh, to embrace the idea of uh, you know, gays and lesbians living happily married together openly and in peace. We don't have any such reservation. Uh, there seems to be uh, a feeling, uh, gosh, we have 11 million people living in this country whose papers aren't in order. Let's round them up. You know, that, that I mean, I served five years on the Holocaust Memorial Council by appointment of George W. Bush. And uh, we're never that far away from a slippery slope. And if you round up 11 million people and say, we're going to build a wall between our country and yours, and we're going to pay for it by confiscating your remittances from your wages, which are the reason you came here to take a bricklaying or gardening job that no one here wanted, uh, it, that's just a non-starter in my mind, very unworkable. So we'd like to call out uh, that sort of thing. And both Gary Johnson and I have good two-term uh, records as governors, one of a western state, one of an eastern state, and we get along like a house of fire, and I'm looking forward to the campaign. And you're both, though, former Republican governors. That, that's a message that, to me, is unmistakable. When you have the Never Trump movement, uh, you've got uh, you want your political protege, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, uh, saying he's not comfortable with this ticket. You've got Mitt Romney, one of your successors as governor in Massachusetts, saying he's not comfortable. Have you, have you talked to either man? Do you think you could get no, them on board? I, I haven't talked to either one, and I wanted to make this decision and do this thing by myself without tarnishing anyone else with foreknowledge. Uh, but I'm obviously very close to both guys. Interestingly, I did not accept the invitation to join the Never Trump movement earlier this year. I did wind up endorsing John Kasich of Ohio, who I'd known, done a lot of business with when he was head of the House Budget Committee in Washington in the 90s. I'm enormously impressed with him. But I never said, uh, boo Trump, stop Trump. Um, And I think uh, Mr. Trump deserves a ton of credit for what he's done. I mean, breaking all the rules and winning. I mean, I, I admire that as something of an iconoclast myself. 
But you're going to be viewed by Republicans, you know this, as as a, as a spoiler, as potentially a Ralph Nader of the of the right, if you if you go ahead with this. No, well, I mean, it, what's uh, the, what's the message to Republicans? Yeah. You you've grown up in this party. You you ran for governor in this party. You ran for Senate in this party. And the tradition is always you get behind the the nominee, like it or not, because that's the way you win the presidency. Well, there's not really a, a message to only one uh, party. The, the message is to both parties. We like to think that our socially liberal uh, credentials uh, would make us uh, potentially appealing to the millennials, who are uh, a uh, large part of Senator Sanders' support over on the Democratic side. So it's you know there's no no Democrats need apply sign outside our shop window. So how do you make this run different than previous libertarian runs? I think in terms of the order of things, it's to uh, drum up as much uh, publicity and uh, financial support as we can and uh, put the pressure on the Commission on Presidential Debates to uh, at least uh, include us in polls or put the pressure on pollsters to include us in polls. When Gary Johnson, by himself, with no Bill Weld, was put into a poll in March, he, he scored 11%. Fox News had him at 10% yesterday, again, with no Bill Weld, no two governors, no joint ticket, no east-west uh, approach to matters. So uh, I, I think there's a pretty good shot we could get to 15%. Then they pretty much have to put us in the presidential and vice presidential debates uh, and we can both talk. And, and I, by the way, I think our combination of ideas is the most appealing combination of ideas for the country. What, what is what is your general take on Trump? Then I mean, you mentioned the slippery slope on immigration. Uh, and yeah, you that's a, a really comparison. that's a really bad one. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand that one at all. Well, what what what's happened in the party then that you're now leaving it and running Libertarian? Obviously, Casey didn't get the nomination, but the you know, ten million people voted for Donald Trump. He's won by millions of votes. No, He's going I, to clinch this I nomination. understand, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And, I, and I'm I'm not here to. Uh, you know, throw ashes all over Donald Trump. Uh, the, the Libertarian Party is going to be on the ballot in all 50 states, so it mathematically can win the election. Uh, there are a lot of people expressing uh, hesitation, would be probably a mild word, uh, about both major party candidates. And when there's an opportunity to get together with a guy who I know and like and whose record parallels mine, I'd be a fool not to seize that opportunity. But but as you know, Massachusetts went about sixty percent for for Trump. Uh, New in the, York in the more than that. Primary, in the yeah. Republican primary, yes. And the, well, yeah. these are again. This is that's how the system. That's how the game is played. That's how, how the system works. I mean, it, it, there's no, nothing in your mind that thinks, well, you have to respect that. I mean, that's the, the Paul Ryan conundrum now. Uh, the, the the former candidates are all going through that right now. You're saying there's no reason to to say, okay, that's the judgment of the Republican voters. Well, not in my mind, because I see an opportunity here to change the national dialogue, which is unsatisfactory at this point. It's sort of javelins being thrown back back and forth, and that produces uh, heat but not light. And I do think it's time for sober reflection on what our foreign policy should be. Uh, you know, uh, Governor Johnson and I both think that uh, the time for boots-on-the-ground interventions has passed, uh, we should not be doing that. Uh, we think if we continue to overspend, and, and the deficit will be $20 trillion by the time President Obama leaves office, $20 trillion, uh, you ho hollow out the economy and you weaken yourself internationally. 
you weaken your currency, you weaken your position economically in the world community. And then you start throwing around, you know, sanctions on China and nuclear weapons in uh, Japan and South Korea. And, you know, pretty soon China is the only superpower. So these are serious matters. And, and uh, I, I think uh, the country would benefit from a serious discussion of them. And, and do you think we're at a point, I mean, we, we've, we've had uh, uh, entire American history to look back and Third parties have just um, <clears throat> have, have had to just to, to say it, um, uh, you know, understated here, have, have not had much success under under our system. Yeah, that's are, right. are, are we at a point where where there's actual room for a real third party, or or, or is the system as it's constructed uh, really kind of uh, you know weighted against that whole idea? Well, I think this year is unusual in in terms of the disaffection between the two major parties. So yeah, it's unusual in that. To that extent, this year is, is uh, uh, perhaps an outlier in terms of the possibilities for a third party. But it wasn't so long ago that Ross Perot got over 20% of the vote. George Wallace got a bunch of states. Uh, you know, John Anderson, I think, got 10%. So, um, but if, if we get even to the 10% threshold and get put into the presidential debates, uh, I think you'll see that 10 or 15% begin to climb because I think we got the best, uh, the best dog food, you know, <laughs> the best uh, package of issues uh, for people to, uh, to sign up for. And it doesn't hurt to, you know, check one box other than, other than uh, the other one if they're both right there on the ballot. And, and the thing about Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, assuming we get the nomination, is we'll be on the ballot in all 50 states. So just to put a button on this, Governor, do you, do you plan to reach out to Charlie Baker, Mitt Romney, others in the Never Trump movement, and try to get them on board? And yeah, to, yeah you know, I'm, I'm not going to rush that, though, because I'd like to see if we can muster some support, which I think might influence the answer. Uh, but I'll be reaching out both to uh, people who I think might be funders uh, of it on the financial side of a, a libertarian-oriented run, or put it this way, an economically and fiscally conservative and socially open and moderate run. And there are such people. Uh, and uh, then at the appropriate point, uh, I'd be asking for political support as well. Probably the financial would come before the political ask. All right. Bill Weld, uh, vice presidential candidate on the libertarian line and former governor of the state of Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us on the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So Matthew Dowd, what's your take? <laughs> well, I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be a ticket to me, is going to have to be uh, is going to influence this part of this process. I think they're serious. There's a serious conversation. They're actually realm of issues. I think when you look at Gary Johnson and Governor Weld on being fiscal conservatives and progressive on social issues, is a realm of voters, a huge realm of voters out there. I think they could have an impact on this race. And as I said earlier, I expect them, if things go forward, to be in those debates come the fall. And they're coming into, John, such a volatile mix of politics where so many unexpected things have happened this year. You can see the opportunity for something else when you when you put together 
a whole bunch of different factors, including the Never Trump movement, including the Bernie movement that uh, that's so upset about Hillary Clinton. The fact that you've got these two, as Matthew said, historically unpopular candidates, the fact that you've had this yearning for a third party candidacy, the fact that they're already on the ballots, the fact that they're former elected officials. There's a lot of a lot of converging circumstances. All that said, the point you made, John, I think is the biggest one of all, which is that none of these third party candidacies have ever gone anywhere in the past. Uh, you know, they've never been successful in modern times. And, you know, you have to go back to Teddy Roosevelt to find one that even really came close. And that's a former president. So, you know, in terms of Name being Teddy su- Roosevelt, that's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, it just it does not it, it just does not compute that you could suddenly break through at this. But there's there are so many different kind of cross currents here that, uh, that that they could potentially be tapping into. This is an interesting thing. So if you think about where we are today and where we were 24 years ago, exactly 24 years ago today, Ross Perot was leading, right, as a third party at this point in time, or roughly at this point in time, and then ended up fading, mainly because of the conductives of his own campaign and his own self. And if you think about where we were 24 years ago before that, that's when George Wallace was doing very well, significantly well as a third party in 1968. And so I think this is, I think the questions being asked this is a moment where it's possible that they have a serious impact. So you're saying this is like the cicadas in Washington, D.C. that come out every 17 years? But uh, That's your description, John Carl. <laughs> uh, he, it's interesting. He slightly overstated, I don't want to nitpick, but he slightly overstated the success of, of, of the last two uh, major uh, third-party candidates. Uh, he said that John Anderson had over 10%. He was actually under 7%. He said Ross Perot was over 20. He was actually 19. I don't mean to nitpick, but uh, um, but but I agree. I mean, the, the, if there was ever a time, it seems that the that the stars have aligned. Uh, when you look at those those numbers to see two party candidates beginning a general election campaign, where the majority of the country neither trusts them nor likes them, um, I, I mean, you'd have to ask if not now, when? I, I think that's right. And then you know we we, we can debate forever what's going on in, in Trump land right now. The fact is he's made some strides at locking down Republicans, uh, and I think him announcing his Supreme Court list probably helps him with conservatives, making them comfortable. But then it turns out someone on that list has been like an, an, an active anti-Trump tweeter. So they didn't even Google those on the short list. That hardly gives confidence in his ability to prosecute a campaign. All right. We have to take a one more quick break. When we come back, we have Rick Klein's interview with LBJ in the person of Brian Cranston. See you in a minute. First out the door, when it matters most, from all across the globe to every corner here at home, he asks, he listens. For more than a decade, he's been right there, everywhere. David Muir, covering our world. And when American jobs are on the line, he leads the charge. More Americans are now watching World News Tonight than in a decade. And we thank you. ABC's World News Tonight with David Muir. He reports to you. Welcome back to the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. So, Rick, you got an interview with one of the great, uh, I think, one of, one of the great actors of our time, Brian Cranston, uh, who's got this, uh, this new HBO movie on LBJ. Take it away. Yeah, the movie is called All the Way. It's premiering just this weekend on HBO, and it's an adaptation of the screenplay that he is, uh, I'm sorry, the stage play that he has 
that he has done. It's a fascinating time that they focus on. A lot is made of LBJ in the Vietnam era. This actually focuses on the year between the Kennedy assassination and Johnson's reelection. There's a, a fascinating dynamic with Martin Luther King and some of the historic figures of that time, uh, Dick Russell in the Senate and the passage of the Civil Rights Act. But uh, I did get the chance to talk to uh, Mr. Cranston, who gave me his best Lyndon Johnson. I want to start with the title, because I I read it a couple different ways. All the way, of course, is LBJ's campaign slogan. Mm -hmm. But it also said to me, whatever it takes. Is that how you read it as well, that whatever the the end is, justifying the means? I think that was part of the uh, construct of the idea, yeah, that he, he doesn't do anything halfway. He goes all the way. And because it rhymed with his, his initials, uh, that it became the perfect one. But you know how he came up with LBJ, was he was a great admirer of FDR. And he thought, yeah, three initials, that is perfect. So he came up with it himself and started calling himself LBJ. And so it stuck. And so he, because he, he followed in, in FDR's New Deal uh, template, you know, to create his great society. And doing this uh, on stage as well, now on screen, what does it say to you about power, about the, the nature of power to play a role like this? Well, it, it is uh, elusive, desirable, uh, and once you have it, is it enough? Is it what you thought it was going to be? And most importantly, what are you going to do with it? If you do obtain power, Are you going to use it like you thought you would and be altruistic and do some benefit for your society? Or does it go to your head? Does it does it fill your ego with that, you know, that uh, newfound power? And what's the answer for for this film? One thing I'm struck by is that there there were no pure motives, pure actions. It seemed like everyone had other interests, maybe their own interests in mind at the same time. I think that's true. I think that um, Power is a, is a seductive element of life. Uh, but LBJ did have a very profound experience in Catula, Texas, when he was a school teacher just out of college, t- teaching these poor little kids and um, the prejudicial treatment that they received. And that, that stayed with him. That was the, the core, emotionally, from which grew the civil rights uh, push in 1964, the voting rights in 65, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, and just thinking of uh, the war on, on poverty and on all the domestic achievements that he was able to get through. And what's the resonance and the relevance to, to today's politics? You must be thinking about that when you're putting on a performance like this about what Lyndon Johnson would think of modern politics. Well, this, this presidential election is unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, and talk about power. We have a power broker as a the presumptive Republican uh, uh, presidential candidate who is devoid of, of substance. So he has power without substance. He has uh, ambition without aim, without focus. He's an empty vessel as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And um, I will do everything in my power to make sure he's not the president. What would LBJ make of Trump? He'd say something like, what the hell is going on in Washington? This, this guy is going to be the Republican leader. My God, things have changed since I've been here. That was excellent, by the way. Oh, well, got some practice that's a practice.
it, John, it does strike me that there's something of LBJ and Donald Trump. I mean, we've got a guy who is media obsessed. You know LBJ would be tweeting in the middle of the night if Twitter had existed in the <laughs> 1960s. And, Absolutely, uh, no doubt. No doubt. And, uh, and, and manipulative of, uh, of people and of the media and understanding and just sort of this larger-than-life figure, uh, uh, the bullying. I, it just, I see a lot of parallels, actually, between Lyndon Johnson and, uh, and Donald Trump, whether or not uh, whether or not uh, Brian Cranston thinks that LBJ would recognize where politics has come today. No doubt. Well, uh, Rick, who are you going to get next? I mean, you got uh, you got Cranston as LBJ. You got any other uh, dead presidents we're going to be talking to? Which, John, did I tell you about the, the, the time I interviewed Abe Lincoln? Did you, did, I think I remember that. So I, the, the Lincoln impersonator. But the best part yeah. is that his name is Rick Klein. Rick Klein. Yeah. Yes, you remember this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, that's it for the Powerhouse Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening. Write a review. Tell your friends. Get everybody to to subscribe. We want to spread the word. I mean, after all, where else can you listen to Rick Klein on a regular basis? I mean, this is is big, right, Rick? It's huge. Of course it is. That's right. This is right. We hope you uh, click on us next time. And you can check us out also on abcnewspodcast.com where you can find other equally uh, worthy ABC News podcasts, including that one by my friend Dan Harris. It's 10% as equal.